Hey, this is John Fanta from Fox College Hoops and Big East Shootaround. You're listening to the best podcast on the Seton Hall Pirates, Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead, guarded by Ochefu, gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate, from San Diego, California, he is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? Doing well, Tommy. Pretty amazing, man, how 29 days ago, this was a team that had just lost by 20 to hated rivals Rutgers. They were 6-4. and four. Sandro, my boy, was diagnosed to be out for six to 10 weeks. Miles Powell was out indefinitely with a concussion, and they were staring down the barrel at a top 10 matchup versus Maryland. You know, if, if there's one thing that I've learned from watching this team over the last two seasons is that you can't predict anything that makes sense to happen. It's just, it's not. I mean, you think they think it's going down, you know, a absolute collapse, and then they pull out that big win against Maryland. You think that they're going to be, you know, top five after the Bahamas tournament and everything just blows up. So at this point, I'm just like last year, I'm along for the ride. Let's see where it takes us right now. We're on an upward trajectory and it's a lot of fun again. So, I mean, how do you feel? The team is playing better and better and it's just a whole lot of fun right now. Six wins in a row, four and oh in conference. This is, I believe the first time since 92, 93 that this happened and, you know, they're making some noise here, and and they're doing it still without Sandro. Who knows? Sandro comes back. There's more firepower. There's more depth. We keep it rolling. So, oh, oh, Don't get me wrong. There's, there's still a ton to break down where this team can improve and get better. And, you know, even though we had two great wins, there there was positives and negatives. So let, let's get right to it. Negative, Mike? We never go negative, but... This week on the podcast, we talk about Seton Hall's wins at Xavier and home against hated Marquette. We will preview the upcoming game at Butler. Zach Braziller of the New York Post joins us. He takes us behind enemy lines to give us an inside view of the St. John's Red Storm. And finally, we see how far down the road to 2494 Miles Powell is after these last two games. But first, Seton Hall 83, Xavier 71. Xavier started well in the first four minutes, jumping out to a 9-4 lead after hitting their first two three-point attempts. The Hall countered with a 26-8 run over the next 10 minutes to hold a 13-point margin. The Musketeers weathered the storm a bit and got the lead down to eight at 40-32 heading into the half. Xavier would cut into the lead early in the second half, but the Pirates always seemed to have an answer. An Obiagu dunk off a Miles Powell assist kept a 9-0 run and gave the Hall their largest margin of the game at 16. Xavier would continue to fight, and a 7-0 run of their own sliced the deficit down to only four with two minutes to go. But big plays by Rodin and Gill ultimately iced the game for the Hall as they pulled away for the final tally. All right, Tommy, stats for the game. Miles Powell led the way yet again, 24 points on 10-21 from the field, and he continues to do a little bit of everything, adding nine rebounds and four assists to his total stat line. Quincy McKnight continued his consistent play with 15 points, eight assists, and three steals, and Jared Roden scored a career-high 16 points. And the Twin Towers... Combined for 15 themselves, eight rebounds, and yes, another eight blocks. 
Xavier had four starters in double figures, led by Tyreek Jones inside with 19 and nine, but they only got three off their bench as Seton Hall ultimately out-rebounded Xavier 32 to 24 and handled the ball really well, dishing out 19 assists compared to just 13 turnovers. You know, Mike, for a long time, we were talking about how we wanted to see Anthony Nelson in the starting lineup, but Quincy McKnight has just stepped up and he's truly become probably the second best player in the team. I think that's the bigger takeaway. It's not even a Quincy McKnight versus Anthony Nelson debate anymore. It was, we've asked for that Robin to Powell's Batman and we kept on saying, eh, just give me a balanced supporting cast. But over his last five games, including the Xavier result, McKnight has averaged 15 points a game, six plus assists, more than four rebounds, and he's got a four to one assist to turnover ratio. I'm shocked. They posted a stat at the beginning of the Marquette game that currently he leads all Big East players in assist to turnover ratio right now. No way did I expect that that's the kind of a statistical performance and quality of point guard play that McKnight was going to bring to this team. So it's, it's, there's no question. He's a senior. He stepped up and he stepped up at a time that the team needed it most with that initial win to start this winning streak against Maryland. It's just, he's earned all the accolades that he gets that we're talking about and what the media is shining upon him as they go through this one streak. Now at the risk of sounding like we're repeating ourselves and we're just reading old script, Gil does it again. Gil closes out with big time plays. I mean, the last two minutes of the game, you can almost point to his play as being the catalyst. I mean, it was just a, literally a highlight reel of Romaro Gill down the stretch to end that game. And it, it got, it got dicey, right? And then all of a sudden you had that big road and steel and off the transition, there's Gill with the dunk. Then we come back down, they try to kind of, you know, cut back into that six point lead and he steals the ball and goes to the free throw line and makes both. In crunch time, shooting five for six from the line overall from the game. Then he blocks a shot, gets the rebound. I mean, as we're running away with the game, yeah, just for good measure, he threw another block shot on there as well. And it leads to the fast break where Roden gets the, the basket and one to kind of wrap up the, the, the scoring for the night. I mean, he has just been impressive. Is, is Gill truly a closer for us now? You know, it was funny because Adam Bound of the Cincinnati Enquirer joined us last week, and he was telling us, yes, Xavier is not really a good three-point shooting team. They want to drive it. They want to pound it in the middle. And I thought to myself, that sounds like a bad strategy <laughs> to do against the Twin Towers here. And, hey, eight blocks later, don't bring that stuff into my house. Well, maybe that's what you got to do. Maybe you got to play to your strength and say, we got to go at these guys and get them into foul trouble. But as frustrated as we were with them leaving their feet, trying to block everything over the last couple of games, they've been much more in control with, with uh, what they're challenging and when they're challenging. I mean, listen to this stat line for Gil. I, I'm shocked. This is his averages collectively for the season, not just the strong run he's been on. He's got six and a half points per game, 5.2 rebounds, and almost three blocks a game. If I told you those were the numbers that you were going to get from Gil at the beginning of the season, consistently, if not better, every night, and then he was going to continually improve upon that, you would have thought I was nuts. Rob, I'd sign up for it in a heartbeat. And then he's just getting better, actually. Better and better every game. You know what he can't get better at? He can't get better at being more than a legit 7-2. Oh, I had to find a, there it I is, everybody. I had to find a way to work it in. Sorry. Uh. Well, you know, another point we met, we brought up with Adam Baum was that Najee Marshall was kind of having an up-and-down year, not a whole lot of consistency. And I'll tell you, Miles Kale did the yeoman work on him because Najee did not make his first field goal until 14 minutes left in the second half. Now you got to give Kale all the credit in the world. I mean, there's going to be nights where maybe he doesn't score, but if Kale is going to take the other team's best player out of the game offensively, I have no issues here whatsoever. I mean, you got to keep him on the floor as long as you can to play that role of shutting down the other guy's best player. I do have an issue with how the minutes were distributed, though, Mike, when Kale got into foul trouble. Hey, well, I, I know where you want to go here, but, but just hold that thought for a second for when we get to the Marquette recap. I think there's going to be plenty of time to talk about the substitution patterns because I know you want to go down the Shavar the rabbit hole 
and he had a really good game against Marquette. So I don't want to bash him here uh, after this the great This isn't about bashing Shavar. This is I, talking I, about I, how the I minutes were distributed, I, Michael. Let, let's look. Let's just look at it collectively when we get to the Marquette game. I think it'll kind of fit better in the conversation at that point, all right? Okay. I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I have another thing that I want to highlight in this game because to me, I was kind of up in the air. Is it more poise that the Pirates showed down the stretch in this Xavier game, or was it more concerns about panic that we've seen in other matchups previously. Xavier made a mad run at the end of the game to bring it down to four. And a lot of that came with their press and, and but for Jared Roden stepping in and getting a big steal, they could have brought it down to two and that could have made things a lot more interesting. Oh, I totally agree. But, but what I really want to do is I want to rewind the clock back to earlier in the, in the sequence here. Because Seton Hall struggled against Oregon. We were down by 19. We couldn't seem to find the plays to stem the tide and keep them at bay. And when we were up by 16 against Xavier, it felt like we were going in that same direction. And it wasn't just the plays in the last two minutes. There were a couple other key plays throughout the uh, the stretch towards the end that I thought were instrumental in maintaining our poise towards the victory. And it started for me, and, and the broadcast did not do a good job, but... They, they cut to it late, but Seton Hall gets a basket and the foul on a Jared Roden inbounds cut to the basket, and that kind of stemmed the tide. And then we get a stop, and then Powell comes back down. It's now becoming kind of almost like it happens once a game now where Powell does his James Harden step back. The defender completely kind of jumps out of his shorts. Powell fakes, leans in, and then gets the three free throws, and he did that on Marshall again. Those two possessions back-to-back bumped the lead back out to 11 when it was down to seven and gave Seton Hall a chance to just kind of catch their breath. And then Roden had another moment. I'm like, I- I'm going to, I'm going to pump up Roden here. Cause you keep on making fun of me that Roden's like my pseudo boy. Now that uh, Sandro's on the shelf, but Roden had a point where he got the pass on the left side. It was late in the shot clock. He dribbled into the lane, could have easily been out of control. And he stopped for a little baby pull up jump shot. That's the kind of game that I told you, I thought he had early in the season. And he was falling in love with the three-point shot. He's got some great mid-range game. And he made some big plays down this stretch. And you already even said it. He was the one with the steal that led to the uh, Powell alley-oop to Gill when it got down to four. I mean, if we made any one of those plays in the Michigan State and Oregon game, we're probably not talking about us collapsing down the stretch. Agree? Absolutely. But with those momentum-changing plays, we also have a lack of poise down the stretch. Powell misses a pair of layups. Quincy McKnight, who seems to do this at least once a game, fouls a three-point shooter. I mean, he did it in the Marquette game. He did it in this game. And finally, we had a ton of problems with that Xavier press at the end. And Quincy threw a couple of bad passes for turnovers while being pressed in the backcourt. So, I mean, there's still stuff we can work on. I just, I, there's a couple of things that you pointed out that I kind of scratched my head. So one, for as great of a defensive player as Q is, and I know he gives you all out effort on those plays where he's trying to close out on a three-point shooter. He really doesn't close out on a three-point shooter well. Like you said it, at least once a game with fouling a three-point shooter in the act, right? I, I just don't get that. And the other part that I didn't understand is we're in that last couple minutes and McKnight makes those two bad passes up against the press. Where's Nelson? Now, I know Nelson had some struggles in the Oregon game against the press as well, but don't you want your best ball handlers in the game at that point, no matter what? Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, we said he struggled in the press with the press in the Oregon game. Well, you keep going into the corner. I'm not liking the press break whatsoever. I think it's way too overcomplicated what we're trying to do. And it seems like we're putting ourselves in bad positions to pass that ball out. But that's, I guess, besides the point there. And we're, and we're probably nitpicking because I thought they played a pretty good overall game here, but you're going to end up in some late games potentially in the NCAA tournament, and it's going to be utter chaos as teams are scrambling to fight for their lives if you have a you know a small lead down the stretch. How frustrating it is going to be to possibly lose a big tournament game because we haven't been able to kind of correct some of the issues that have reared their ugly head. Normally now it's it's, it's been two or three times right now in the regular season, so I'd like to see them take – something away from this game other than the great effort and find ways to kind of tighten things up. But what I I did notice, and I think we sometimes now take it for granted is what miles Powell does. I mean, he puts in another 20 plus. Are we taking it for granted 
that he's just going to score 20 plus. And we we're don't... just we're just looking at it like, oh, yeah, Miles had kind of a blah game. I right. mean, you know, I mean, he's hasn't been shooting well from three since he came back from the concussion. I mean, that's just that's just numbers there. But he's playing fantastic. But we're just kind of saying, oh, yeah. He got his 24. He got his 27. Whatever it is, it's just kind of like 20. Okay. Wait, 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 24, nine boards, four assists, and we're like, blah, blah, blah. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we on. didn't even mention him. We didn't even mention his game. We mentioned McKnight. We mentioned Gill. We mentioned Kale. And then we started complaining. But yeah, no, this is what happens when you're this great. Yeah, this is what happens. And I think that's what's happening. Unless he goes off for like 30 plus and we can talk about his performance out of the ordinary, we are kind of taking it for granted. But if Miles can, can deliver this kind of consistency on a night in a night out basis, and then we are talking about the other pieces and how they contribute consistently. Yeah, that that's what makes the ceiling for this team so high and what built up the hype and all the anticipation for the season at the beginning of the year and why people truly believed that that 13th national ranking wasn't that far out of the possibility, if not maybe, you know, selling them short a little bit. I, I know it's crazy where we went from sky's the limit to the season's falling apart back to the sky's the limit again, but we start to, to see some of those glimpses now in the savior game. It's almost more stupid than it is crazy, Mike. And speaking of stupid stuff, that brings us to the stupid stuff the announcer said segment for the week. And I want to start with Tim Miles. He was on the the color of this game. And I might be a little bit off base, but let me ask you this before I read his quote. I didn't know it was Tim doing the game because I got to the broadcast late and I didn't know it, it was him doing the color. It sounded like he was a female, didn't it? Oh, Mike, why are Am we I going here, wrong? Mike? I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm gonna, this is our fun segment. We're making light of things. I could have sworn... Tim was a female color commentator until they actually cut to Tim later Tim on. Tim may like, have a bit of a high-pitched voice. What are you going to do, man? I mean, it is what it is. Well, in his high-pitched voice, uh, early in the game, when I went back to kind of replay the, the telecast, he's talking about Miles Powell's strong career numbers at the Cintas Center, and he says, you never know what it's going to drive you. He goes, it could be the lighting in a building, or it could be the vitamins you get in the Cincinnati area. What, what, what vitamins is he talking about? Is he got does Powell got a guy on the corner that feeds him his vitamins when he comes into Cincinnati? What, what, what am I missing here? I don't know, but you know, normally I let you handle this, but there was another comment that they made, and it was kind of a dated cultural reference. Uh, Miles brings up the cool a cool hand Luke comment. Where cool hand Luke was a old movie from the past, and Tom Brenneman, who was doing the play by play, mentioned yes, that's something we could both get behind. That's Clint Eastwood right there. No, wrong. Uh, it, it's Paul Newman. I mean, even this is this is even before our time, Mike. So if you're gonna use a dated reference, at least get your dated reference correct. Eating fifty eggs, huh? Oh my. <laughs> God, I'll tell you. Moving on. Seton Hall 69, Marquette 55. Marquette got off to a hot start, quieting a crowd of almost 13,000 at the Rock. They were six from eight from deep and also got fouled on two other attempts while building a 24-13 lead. Miles Powell answered and scored 14 points to rally the hall back to a 40-37 halftime lead. The Battle of All-American Candidates did not disappoint in that first half. Marcus Howard of Marquette had 18 and Miles Powell netted a cool 16. Early in the second half, the Pirates built a seven-point lead before Marquette answered with a run to tie it at 45. At that point, the bench came in and took over. Anthony Nelson decided, hey, this is my game. I can play it too. Scored two buckets, passed off on two assists, and was part of an 11 11-0 run in three minutes, and that was all she wrote as Seton Hall's defense shut down things from there, limiting the Golden Eagles to only 10 points over the final 11 minutes. All right, Tommy, stats on this one. Miles Powell, once again, 23 points on 8 of 22 from the field. Almost kind of feels like a broken record, but he did struggle behind the line. 2 of 11 from distance, but continued to find other ways to contribute. Seven rebounds and three steals. Romaro Gill cracked double digits again with 10 points and added another six boards. Quincy McKnight continued his rock-steady play with six assists and one turnover. 
but you said it. The bench is where this game was won. 25 points and 12 rebounds collectively. For Marquette, it was once again all Marcus Howard chipping in for 27 points of the team's 55. Brendan barely added 11 rebounds, but this game was all Seton Hall. The Pirates only had five turnovers and held Marquette to 32% field goal shooting, 21 points below their season average of 76 points per game. Now, Mike, right after the game ended, I texted you and I said, story of the game, the D and the bench. Miles Powell scored his 23 points, but he was struggling. He wasn't in rhythm. He had a hard time getting the ball in the basket. But the D and the bench was not going to let this game get away. I, I Spot on. I really know one other way to break it down. And so now now you, let's talk about it. Now, let's talk about Shavar Reynolds. And if you want to kind of you know give some feedback as to minutes allocation in the Xavier game, we can talk about conversely how it played out and why there's a whole bunch of different opinions out there on Shavar's effort, uh, what he accomplished in this game, and what he brings to Seton Hall and his role going forward. So well, let, let's, let's, let's start off with the here. glass half full, though, Mike, sure, okay? Sure, because go I actually go got quite a few DMs from various people basically saying, and just one word, Shavar. People are excited. You know why? He played the best game of the year. Yeah, he was a yes, difference he maker, he and, but he was a difference maker differently. He was a difference maker on the defensive end. Look, he helped shut down Marcus Howard in the second half. There's no question about that. And he had some other highlight moments. He had that hustle play in the first half where there was a loose ball. He goes diving on the floor, taps it forward. Q leaks out for a dunk. I mean, that was a, you know, get the crowd involved in the game, get dirty, get the floor burns. People love that kind of stuff. So when he, especially when a player like Shavar, who was a former walk-on, now a scholarship player, you know, he's the underdog. So when he makes that kind of play, yeah, he's going to rally the, the fans around him. And he made some better plays in this game that we have criticized him for previously. We were concerned about sometimes him forcing the offensive side of the ball and not knowing his role per se, but he turned down a challenge layup for a nice pass to Jared Roden for a three that was late in the shot clock. And that got us back in the game early on when we were struggling. So he turned the game with his hustle play in the first half. And he was a part of that big 11-0 run in the second half, making a three-pointer and also locking down on Howard. I mean, there was a lot of things that he did well. Absolutely. But here's where it gets to it. People are giving him all sorts of credit for his play in the Marquette game. Deservedly so. But he didn't have that good a game in Xavier, and he got more minutes. He got 17 minutes in that game, which was almost more than what Nelson and Samuel combined. It's just kind of nutty. All right, so, so here's the thing. I, I think you have to look at Shavar's impact relative to the game itself. I don't think he has a defined, hey, he's five minutes off the bench. He's a 20-minute guy off the bench. I, I don't think he has that specific night-to-night allocation. I think Willard has to do his job of having a feel for the game. So everyone goes, oh, Shavar changed the game. No, I, I'm going to give Willard a lot of credit here. I think it was Willard that gets the kudos because he changed his strategy mid-game. We're always teasing him for that whole Rothstein chiropractor adjustment joke, but I, but I think he did it this time. You know, he was playing McKnight against Howard straight up and he was playing him, you know, not pressuring him in the backcourt. And what did he start doing? He took a page out of what other teams have done to miles Powell. And he started pressuring Howard by face guarding him full court. So it wasn't just Shavar, but Shavar did a great job of doing that. And there was a couple of possessions where it was really pronounced how Shavar was denying him the ball. But it wasn't just Shavar. It was Shavar. It was McKnight. It was Nelson. We were playing ball denial on him the entire second half. And kudos to Willer because he was the one who implemented that strategy. Shavar just happened to kind of carry it out for the majority of the second half. And right? as we give Willard kudos for those uh, adjustments that he made in the Marquette game, I got to think we've got to give him a little criticism for how he handled minutes in the Xavier game. So, okay. Miles okay. Kale gets his fourth foul with about 7.55 left to play in the game. Now, why are you not moving Jared Roden down to the three, which is probably his natural position anyway, and bringing in Tyrese Samuel, who's been showing lots of potential and playing really well in these games? 
I don't get it. So, so this is where I say you have to look at the game individually under a microscope in the moment and make the right adjustment or allocation of minutes for that specific matchup. In that game, Nelson only played nine minutes but had four assists. Samuel only played 10 minutes but had five points. You could have played a different card there other than Shavar and maybe expanded upon two other players that were having good nights. Shavar was, Shavar was okay, but he was not having one of his better games like he did against this Marquette game. I just want to see Willard kind of juggle the management. This is, once again, we say this over and over again, this is not a Shavar Reynolds pick on or evaluation. This is more of a judgment of Willard to say, hey, how is he managing the rotation? And is he managing the rotation effectively? Because in that, in that Xavier game, there were moments that he was not playing his best defense. Right. I mean, you pointed this out to me, right? So I'll let you take this one. Well, so he subs in for Miles Kale at about the 14 minute mark all. And it seems like Xavier was like, oh, we're going to go pick on him here. Twice they were pick and roll switches and he got posted up for buckets by Scruggs. Then he got the ball with about 11 seconds to go on the shot clock a little bit later. He didn't dribble. He looked like he was panicking, and he immediately looked to pass. And Powell ended up jacking an off-balance three. I mean, it's it. he didn't look good in the game. And, it, you know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff you're going to get sometimes from him. But if you look at the great plus-minus that Willard loves pointing to, he comes in being up 9, he leaves up 13. Well, that's a plus-4, and the eye test doesn't tell me he was a big part of that plus-4. No, and, and I agree, but he did have a plus-21 in this Marquette game. So, once again, take the good with the bad. I think I'm starting to come around personally where I think Shavar has some type of a role on this team, but it's a night-in and night-out decision to evaluate how he's going to be able to impact the game. Some nights he's going to have the energy that we need. He's going to be that defensive uh, energizer bunny all over the guy's best score. And other nights he's just going to be mismatched. And I think Willard just needs to identify whether it's a good night or whether it's an off night because he does have other talented players that are going to be starving for minutes. And this is why we're making a big deal about this. We're talking about minute allocation where Roden, Samuel, and Nelson might have been shortchanged in a particular game. What the heck happens when Sandro comes back? How are you going to find minutes for these guys? They are too talented not to play. And if Shavar is having a, an off night, in my opinion, I don't think you can play him 20 minutes on a given night when you have guys on the bench that have, I hate to say it, higher ceilings. And speaking of those guys off the bench, they played a wonderful game against Marquette. I mean, Anthony Nelson, he's been quite up and down this season. We already brought up his ups uh, for this game, and he had a brilliant alley-oop over to Obiagu late in that game that was just a rim rocker. Tyree Samuel went for eight points and five rebounds. And my personal favorite is the fake that he gave to one of the Marquette players off that three-point line and came in and jammed one home. I mean, that was a spectacular-looking dunk. And to be honest, he wasn't doing that earlier in the season. He was settling for that jumper regardless of whether it was there or not, whether he was set or not. So that is a nice progression in his game. And your personal favorite guy to jump all over, Ike, he had himself six points, four rebounds. He's looking more comfortable. And, you know, he's starting to kind of progress. My personal favorite guy to jump all over? Is it, is it not a fair observation? that I'm just season, saying you bash on him like he owes you money, Mike. And you know ba what? Bash is, a, bash is a tough word, man. Any guy... Any guy oh. that makes Theo John look small is all right by me. Look, early in the season, Ike was going through some struggles. I, it was really surprising and a, very, and a little disappointing that it seemed like he had that much rust on his game. But I want to say, once again, since the Maryland game, he has shown more signs of being comfortable and being in better position and getting his hands on the ball with the opportunity to finish. We're getting contributions from Ike. Rowe is playing to the level that we thought might be the, the limit that I could have. That's probably not going to happen this year, but, but we getting that from Rowe. So, so no complaints. And what Ike is starting to give you right now is a competent two headed monster rotating at the center position. So no issues with Ike completely agree with you on Samuel. It's exciting to kind of just see that potential night in and night out. 
I'm expecting him to hit that three ball right now. And I think you're downplaying Anthony Nelson's performance in this game. He single-handedly, when it was tied at 45, ignited that run. He hasn't been able to put together those kind of stretches over an entire 40 minutes. But in that three-minute stretch, those two buckets and the two assists, you were just like, wow, this guy has it. If, if I can get this for an entire night, I have the confidence that this guy can be the man that we turn the keys over to starting next year. So, Mike, the team's playing well. But can this team get better? I mean, we've won the last six games, like I mentioned. We're 4-0 in conference, all without Sandro, who happened to get his pins taken out of his wrist earlier this week. Where can we this go from the, here? This is not your opportunity to be like, Mike, we're 6-0 we're and without Sandro. See, I told you so. No, no. Why, why would I say that, man? Sandro gives us another dimension. I, I Bring the talent in, man. Bring them in with layers and let it figure itself out. So, so there you have it. We're, we're playing at a really high level and there are things that can still be improved. And we don't have Sandro, who has arguably been the second best player on this team prior to his injury. We won a game against, I, I'm not sure where to put Marquette yet in the whole scope of the Big East, but they're not, they're not a horrible team, right? They're still a reputable team. And they beat them by 14. And in my opinion, still did not play their best basketball. They shot five of 21 from three. They shot 14 of 26 from the line. We only got two points out of miles kill. And remember Powell only shot two of 11 from three. If we did two or three of those things better, what do we beat them by 30? That, that's scary, right? You, you ask me where Marquette is. I think Marquette's this. I think Marquette's got that one superstar on their team and the rest of them are a bunch of role players. I think they'll play better at home as these types of teams do. I still think we beat them when we go to Marquette. But they'll play better at home. They'll be over 500. They'll finish the year somewhere around, you know, 10 and 8, 11 and 7 or something like that. But they're they're not a top-notch team, not, not this year. Now, if the Hauser brothers were still there, you know, maybe if Marcus Howard passed a little bit more, maybe the Hauser brothers would still be there. But th this isn't going to be a team, I don't think, that – makes a run for the for the uh, championship here no no i i can agree with you completely on that my point was they're just they're just not a pushover and it was still a solid win we struggled to score down the last 10 minutes of the game just like they struggled to score like i said there were so many other things that we could have still done better and you walked out of the, your home building with a comfortable double digit win I mean, that's just not something we normally say about seton hall basketball in previous years you normally kind of got like gutted out down by a possession or two down the stretch this was a comfortable win without our best performance. That is highly encouraging. Yes, we did a lot of nice things, a lot of things that made you say, wow, and at least a couple of things that made you say, whoa. Did you see that? <laughs> we got to work right. on these segues. We really do, man. All right, let, let's just jump right into it. I, I was going to ask you, can the whoa, did you see that moment be a miss? Absolutely is, is, not. Is, is that allowed? Because, no. I mean, absolutely first... not. Come on, let, give me a shot here. The the first dunk attempt by Obiago off the pick and roll. He gets it at the, the free throw line, takes one step, goes behind his head with two hands, and just unloads. And I'm not sure if somebody got him on the hand or not, but he just completely like bricked it off the backboard. <laughs> I was more I was more shocked that someone from Marquette got in the way of that. Obiagu's a beast. I mean, he makes Theo John look small, and he just went crazy. And the second one that he actually did make was a pretty it was a pretty great dunk. But I'm going to give it to the Miles Powell dish to Gill for the dunk, where he drew three defenders and then wrapped around this no-look pass over to Gill, and Gill just monster-jammed at home. All right, I'll, I'll agree with you. As, as much as I was kind of, whoa, on the uh, the two Obiagu plays, what really kind of got me out of my seat on the Miles Powell uh, assist is that's what I thought we were going to see a lot more of Powell uh, coming into the season, was this play the lead guard, attract all the attention from the other team, double, triple teams, and then use his ability to facilitate and, and get other guys involved. And he started to do that better this week, specifically off the pick and roll. And I thought that's what stood out between him and Howard going head to head. They both got theirs offensively, but I think Miles just filled the stat sheet better than Howard did across the board. And I got to give round one to Miles Powell. 
I, I think the whole all-American candidate battle was a little, I don't know, uh, lackluster, if you will. I mean, Powell was not shooting the ball well. Marcus Howard went to a big cold spell to end the game thanks to some great defense by Shavar and a few others. So I, I'm, I'm, there wasn't much that drew me to that. That wasn't like the main event fight that we were expecting to see. Maybe we'll see it later in the season when they go to Marquette. Maybe both guys will be more at the top of their game. We'll see if that happens. Sure, but at the end of the day, our guys essentially took care of business. And it's not easy to take care of business when you have a tough road game in conference play and then you have a dynamic player across the way like a Marcus Howard. I mean, if I look across the country at what other teams in the top 25 did this week, I mean, just bear with me for a second. Listen to all the losers that just did not take care of business and win both or the only game that they had on their docket. 24, Arizona went down. 22, Texas Tech went down twice. Memphis, 21 lost. Penn State at 20 lost twice. Michigan, 19. Virginia, 18, down twice. Maryland, 12. Ohio State, 11, also down twice. Michigan State got taken to the woodshed by almost 30 on the road. And Kansas even lost at home. I mean, that's crazy. Kansas just never loses at home. I mean, I could honestly Seton Hall right now, when the new rankings come out on Monday, be somewhere in the 18 to 20 range based on how many teams lost ahead of them. You're not crazy to say that, Mike. I mean, technically, I think they had us listed at 27th in the AP, and I think the coaches had us at 25th. So jumping up to to that range with this many losses, that's not crazy. That that That's a possibility. Well, and, and we're number one ranked in the Big East. I think people, are, we said this, they get a little lazy when they do their rankings, right? So they're going to see Seton Hall 27th in the previous polls, all the teams lost ahead of them, and they're going to look at the Big East standings and go, whoa, there's Seton Hall, 4-0, at the top of the standings. Double-digit road win, double-digit home win. I think we're going to get the respect. I think they remember us from being in the polls early in the season. I think you're going to see a spike back up into the top 25, and that brings us to our Butler preview because now you have a top 25 matchup against a team that should be ranked number five when the polls come out on Monday because Butler all of a sudden has now become a marquee game on our schedule. Man, and who would have thought this at the beginning of the season? I mean, they, they're they 15-1 overall. The only reason they're second in the Big East is because they've played one less game than us right now. They're they're undefeated in the Big East at 3-0. and They've got great rankings in the net and Ken Palm at 3-5, and respectively. And they've taken care of business in the games they've played. They won at St. John's. They dominated Creighton at home and they had a solid road win at providence so i mean this is this is a good team they're, they're a tested team and so that st john's game they blew the doors off of st john's early in that game getting up by 23 early in the second half and st john's rallies not to make it close st john's took a five-point lead with three minutes to play so i mean think about most teams with young college kids you all of a sudden you have a 28 point turnaround you're on the road that building has to be rocking. And what do they do? They go on a 7-0 run in the last three minutes to end that game and walk out of that gym with a W. And I believe it was at Carneseca, which, you know, you're in that little band box. That's an impressive win, even though St. John's has been down this year. And seems like nobody else could solve Providence. Providence was 3-0 out of nowhere coming off of a down non-conference. They go on the road at Providence, put up a double-digit win, they're, they're a tough team. Let, let, let's look at them a little bit closer to see what else has happened to them throughout the course of the year and kind of what makes up their roster. You want well, to start with the non-conference? Well, in a non-conference, they had good wins all throughout, man. They beat Minnesota. They beat Florida. They beat Stanford and Ole Miss on neutral sites. And they beat uh, Purdue, who's having a rough year so far. But Purdue just beat Michigan State, so any given night. And their only loss right now is a one-point loss at Baylor, who a lot of folks are projecting at being the number one team when it comes down to it. There's nothing sexy about that resume. It's just solid. Right. And then kind of that's that's kind of embodies who they are and who their players are. So you got Kamar Baldwin and he's 14.8 points per game, four and a half rebounds a game, almost three assists. You know, those numbers don't jump off the page as like all American, but he is just rock 
solid as a ball player, right? He's in control. They know he's the guy, and he's still making big plays down the stretch. And, you know, Sean McDermott has been playing consistent basketball, 11 and a half points a game, shooting 43% from three. The two of them as, you know, upperclassmen are really complimenting themselves and leading this team. Yeah, the kid who we like calling Bastard Buckets, man, he seems to have been shooting since he's gotten there. So he's been a strong contributor for a while for them. It's not what these two are bringing on the offense that really defines the team, but I, I think their their rugged, tough, consistent play is kind of also a parallel to what they do on the defensive side of, of the court because defense is their calling card. This team holds people to 54 points a game, they hold their opponents to 36% field goal shooting, which is 11th best in the country. They hold the opponents also to 26% from three-point range, which is fifth nationally. And they hold their own on the glass with a positive rebounding margin of over seven, which is also 28th nationally. I mean, these are not just like, oh, you know, peripheral. They, they got a couple good wins, but they haven't beaten. They take care of business. They, they just play solid basketball. So Seton Hall has the sometimes the – propensity to go in and play a little loose this is not the team that you want to play loose against they are going to fundamentally take you to the woodshed if you don't do things well the only thing i'm going to miss for this game as it's coming down the pipe is that lavelle jordan's not going to be mic'd up because he was gold last year mike <laughs> he really was i mean this was not supposed to be a willard versus jordan on the mic but i, I thought he i thought he had the best of kevin in, no, in he, he was good when he looked at jared ronan and said why does this kid only hit three pointers against us i thought it was going to fall out of my chair all right so in in my opinion the, the way that Butler's going to beat you they're going to play this great d they're not going to give you second chance points they're not going to turn the ball over and kamar baldwin's going to make big plays but you have to put this into perspective they, they only score 63 points a game so it feels like powell's just been kind of like itching to have one of those breakout games again doesn't it we've played well at their place in the past mike so and and miles powell if i'm not mistaken he's made big plays there before so it's not out of the realm of possibility that we're gonna go in there and steal a victory at butler i'm not saying steal i'm saying if you if you get this ho-hum 24 from miles that we were joking about earlier and this Butler team really only scores in the low 60s. I mean, it's going to be a rock fight. They're not, they're not going to run you out of the building. So keep it close. Get what you get from Miles. And if other people can step up, I, I don't see it being out of the realm of possibility to win this one. I no, just not in the least bit. And later in the week, Mike, we go away again to a sort of home away from home. We get the Johnnies at the Garden, Mike. And who better to preview this game than someone who covers them? If we've got Zach Braziller of the New York Post coming on, he's going to give us a little inside information and let us go behind enemy lines. Like, I, I'm excited to have Zach on. I mean, we have all these different people that write articles out there, kind of recapping Seton Hall. I think Zach writes it as straight up as anybody else. So really excited to kind of ask him a couple questions about St. John's and even pick his brain a little bit on Seton Hall. He is a sports writer for the New York Post. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Zach Braziller. Zach, how are you? What's up, guys? Hey, Zach, thanks for joining the show. Let, let's get right to it. Let's kind of stay current with St. John's. How important was it for them to bounce back from the blowout loss at Georgetown and get their first conference win Saturday versus DePaul? I mean, it was, it was obviously really, really important. They, they had started 0-3 after really a, a very uh, surprising 11-2 in the non-conference. You know, they, they should have beat Butler. They were down big, came back, were up five or three minutes left and blew the game. And then, you know, they lost a tough one at Xavier and then really didn't show up against Georgetown. So, yeah, look, they needed that DePaul at home. DePaul hasn't won a league game either. They really needed that win. You know, I look, I came in the year saying if this team could make the NIT, it would be a great year. And I still think that's that's very possible. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. You know, it's only one win. They're, they're a team that really, you know, offensively struggles. They really need their defense to create offense for them. But it was a very big win. Mustafa Heron, who really hasn't had a great year so far, has been a little hurt, really bound, you know, had his, probably his best Big East game so far. He had 15 points and played a good second half. So I thought that was a very, very important. Now they go to Providence Wednesday before Seton Hall on Saturday. Um, so, you know, a you know, chance to, you know, have some, try to get some momentum going. 
I think it says a lot about the coaching of Mike Anderson as he makes the necessary adjustment, adjustments. Rasheem Dunn played a solid game at Georgetown and was elevated to the starting lineup against DePaul. And again, he delivered 19 points, 8 rebounds, 5 assists with a team-high 32 minutes. Can you describe the impact of what getting the transfer waiver eligibility for Dunn has meant to the makeup of this team? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously been really important. Like I said, this team doesn't have a lot of offense. You know, they have Heron, they have LJ Figueroa. And Dunn's really been that third guy. You know, he can get into the lane. He can create. You know, he's not really a point guard. He's more of a scorer. But he's, look, he's in their big wins. You know, he's been big. The uh, the West Virginia win, which has been a, looked like a great win. You know, he made a key defensive play late and then got to the line and hit the game-winning free throws. Obviously, the DePaul game, he he was one of the few guys who actually played well against Georgetown. Um, so, yeah, he, he's been significant. Look, he's a Brooklyn kid, and he, um, he you know, he, he had bounced around a few different schools, and he's, a, you know, I've only heard really positive things about him as a person. It seems like a really nice kid and, you know, seems really happy to be back home playing for St. John's, and he's really helped this team. How big of an influence, if any, do you think the media was in making the NCAA change their position on the initial decision? I mean, I, I don't know. It's 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 hard to say. I, I don't think it was that big. I mean, look, it's a kid. He, he transfers to Cleveland State to play for a coach. The coach then gets fired in July. He already sat out a year. I mean, and the kid's got to sit out two years? You know, I mean, he didn't know the coach wasn't going to be there. He, he committed to the coach, not to the school. Um, no, to- Totally agree, but I mean, the decision was for him not to get the waiver at first, then all of a sudden, there's this huge support to kind of point out what you just described. So, I mean, there had to have been some influence by people like yourself, no? Maybe, maybe. Um, You know, I I know the NCAA decisions, I I never try to understand them because to me, they seem so just inconsistent. So maybe it had a role, maybe it didn't. It's hard to say. I mean... You know, basically what I was told with his with his case was St. John's was working with the NCAA. When the NCAA turned them down, they turned them down, but they also said, listen, you know, um, we're not going to – you don't have to go right to appeal. You you know, there are certain things that if we hear from you could maybe change things, and they obviously adjusted the, the uh, request, and it, it worked out. Well, let's stick with the concept of adjustment. So Dunn is inserted into the starting lineup – but this comes off of the heels of Anderson benching Josh Roberts and Julian Champagne in the Georgetown game. Any insight why through the four Big East games, they both have essentially been a non-factor to this point? You know, look, Julian is a freshman, and, I, I, I you know, I, I think he just struggling with the normal things freshmen struggle with. I mean, you know, he wasn't a guy people thought was going to make an immediate impact. He was a three-star kid, and, you know, he played really well in the non-conference, and, you know, teams have obviously made adjustments to him. And, you know, same thing with Roberts. Roberts is a guy who really played all last year. So he was almost like a freshman too. And, you know, Anderson had a good a good point after the Georgetown game is he kind of insinuated that maybe these guys were getting a little too comfortable. And look, Roberts didn't play great against the pole, but Champetti played terrific. Um, that was kind of the way that kids played all, you know, in the non-conference. So, I mean, I, I thought he – that was very important for that in that DePaul game. You know, we talked about Dunn, Champetti really stepping up and, and playing well was pretty significant. Now, you mentioned previously that Mustafa Heron hasn't played all that well yet this year, but he played his best game since returning from the ankle injury three games ago at Xavier. Does he appear to be at full strength at this point? Yeah, I think he's at full strength. I just, you know, I think he's been struggling with his rhythm. I think he's been forcing it. He knows the team needs his scoring. And, you know, what I really liked about him in the DePaul game is he had some shots, but he, he didn't force it. You know, there have been games where the first time he gets the ball and it's a decent look, he's taking the shot. This game, he really was patient, which is important. Look, the team needs him and Figueroa to score to beat decent teams. There's no it's, – it's obvious. But they need these guys to do it within the flow of the offense. They need them to – you know, for this team to be a half-decent offensive team, they got to share the ball. They got to attack. They, they can't be taking three-pointers. They're just not a good three-point shooting team. They need to really get into the paint and get open looks. And that's really, I thought, what they did against the ball. So, Zach, I want to go back to Mike Anderson for a moment. So, Chris Mullins steps down. It seemed as St. John's was struggling in a pursuit to find out who the next coach was going to be. And the public believed that they settled for Anderson more than anything else. 
How is the long-term perspective of that decision being viewed now by the fans and, and those critics after they've seen a small body of work for what they've accomplished so far this year? I mean, I, I think a lot of fans like Anderson. I think he's the kind of guy that this program has needed for a long time. Look, he is 60, so he's obviously older than you would like, but he's a no-nonsense real basketball coach. Chris Mullen wasn't. Steve Lavin wasn't. This is a guy who is a grinder, who works. He isn't a guy that, you know, Steve Lavin left St. John's. He got TV immediately. Chris Mullen's always going to be Chris Mullen. They need a guy who basically treat treats this like it's his life, and that's what Mike Anderson is. Look, the recruiting is okay. I'm not saying the recruiting has been great so far. I think it's he's got some decent players coming in for next year. But you can just see it with some of these guys and their, how well some of these guys who people didn't really expect a lot from and how they're playing. I mean, he's got a good coaching staff. He knows what he wants. You know, after that Georgetown game, the first real, I would say, real bad performance this team has had this year. You know, Butler lost. Look, lost to Butler. Butler's very good. Losing at Xavier is nothing, nothing wrong with that. A few of their non-league losses, you know, they – they lost a tough game to Arizona State. They lost to Vermont, you know, in the final minute. But this was the first really bad game they've played. And after the game, put it on himself. First thing he said in the press conference was, I didn't do a good job preparing us. He benched some guys. You know, I don't. I can't remember the last time I heard a St. John's coach blame himself unprompted um, about a performance. And that, to me, really, people, players like that, recruits and, you know, coaches notice that. This is a coach that's really – going to hold himself and his players accountable. That's that's what good programs have. Okay, so we identify accountability as maybe a contrast to what Mullen did. What else are you seeing from Anderson that's different from the success that he's having versus the the lack of success, for you know, lack of a better word, than, than Mullen had with the team? There's a true identity. You know, they're, they're going to play hard. They're going to press. You know, they're going to try to get up and down. They're – you know, I don't really, the last two, I didn't really see a true identity, you know, with, with these teams there, he's given this program a real identity for how they're going to play. And that's important. It's important in recruiting. You know, he's identifying certain guys. He knows the kind of players that work in his system. It's not just like, let's just find the talented guys and, th- and throw them in the, you know, bush them together. He knows what, what works in his system. And that's the kind of kid he's recruited. So, but Mullen found talent though. Is it because he didn't have a scheme where he lacked those X's and O's? I mean, they had talent, but they were it was weird fitting talent. You know, they they would have too too many small guards, or they didn't really have bigs. And you know, it, it, he did have talent, but they were transfers, obviously. And so a lot of that time, they they were always short on depth because they'd have kids sitting out, which always hurt. And this is one team he's playing ten guys. You know, he's, he's going deep into his bench. He's developed his bench, which is a big, which was always a big issue with Mullen. Okay, let's talk about the Seton Hall-Johnny's matchup. Now, as much as it must chap the hides of Johnny's fans and the team, Seton Hall considers Madison Square Garden their home away from home. Now, we are previewing this week's upcoming game before we know the outcome of some challenging road games that both the Hall and the Johnnies face, respectively. Do you think the game loses some juice if both teams are coming off a loss, or does the rivalry carry enough weight? I mean, I think it would help if if one or both win. But, no, I mean, I look, it's it's a long season in the Big East. I, I don't think it would take anything away. You know, the funny thing, Seton Hall has really not played well at the Garden against St. John's, as well as Seton Hall has played at the Garden when you're talking about the Big East tournament, you're talking about beating Kentucky last year. You know, they've they've struggled with St. John's at the Garden. You know, they they, they, lost, they lost to him last year at the Garden. They, I remember even Mullen's first year, they almost, they almost – St. John's almost beat him at the Garden. So, Seton Hall is really not – played great at the garden against St. John's interestingly enough. And, you know, I think St. John's can give Seton Hall some problems with their press. You know, Seton Hall is a team that at times struggles turning the ball over. I do think Seton Hall will give St. John's a ton of issues inside with, with their bigs. You know, St. John's is a team that struggles shooting the ball from the perimeter. So if they can't really score inside, it's going to, you know, it's going to be a problem. I, I would expect Seton Hall to be favored in the game. Um, but to me, it's an interesting matchup. You know, if St. John's can get the game up and down and, create turns with their press, I think they can, you know, make Seton Hall sweat. Zach, before we dive into more on the nuances of the game itself, I want to stick with this Madden Square Garden concept. So it's the fifth consecutive year that they're actually playing at the Mecca. But in previous seasons, 
they were playing at Cornerseca Arena more right. consistently when they seemed like the Bobby Gonzalez era was was taking place. Has Seton Hall's recent resurgence created too much of a draw not to play the game at the Garden? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it, but I also think I think, like you said, I think that was more of a Bobby Gonzalez thing <laughs> more than anything else. They've become a draw. They got they've had city kids. Obviously, you know they only they don't have as many as they used to. I mean, Anthony Nelson's a city kid, and you know Road is from Long Island, but you know they don't have as many as they used to when you had Carrington and Desi Rodriguez, and even going back to Isaiah Whitehead. But yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think they're going to be ranked. Obviously, well, by the time this is out, we'll know what they're ranked. But I, I think they're going to be ranked in the top twenty when the new poll comes out. Um, they're 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 playing great. I mean, they I think this is a, at least a Sweet Sixteen team as long as they can they stay injury free and continue to play the way they're playing. I mean, I'm just so impressed at how Willard really got them stabilized after that little mini mini slump in, in, in December and you know whether it's Nelson playing great Roden Kale I mean the supporting cast has really come a long way in the last month well from your lips to God's ears we'd love to see a sweet 16 out of this team at least now LJ Figueroa won the Big East defensive player of the year in 2019 and Hall fans really felt that Quincy McKnight may have deserved that honor and this year, Romero Gill might be in a running for it as well. How good of a defensive player is Figueroa if you were describing him to someone who hasn't seen him play before? You know, he, he's really long. He's really athletic. He, he gets into the passing lanes. He plays really hard. That's the thing. You know, he's he's a big scorer, but most some scorers, you say, they kind of just take it easy on the defense. He, he plays hard defensively and you know he's a big part of that press you know with his long arms and and creating turnovers but yeah i i I don't i think right now gill has got to be up there for defensive player of the year i mean he just changes games especially the end of the he's so good late in these games you know you saw it in the xavier game you saw it in georgetown you know just how good he is blocking shots and and kind of leading to fast break chances i mean i i think you you go him He's in there. Najee Marshall of Xavier is a very, very good defender. Um, I'm sure Nova's got some good defenders, but I, I think Gill right now has got to be close to the top of the list. Zach, you mentioned the press. Clearly, Mike Anderson wants to dictate pace of play and use a lot of guys on his bench to force turnovers. Specifically, St. John's is 14th in the nation and forcing over 18 a game. Will St. John's be able to do that against a senior backcourt of Powell and McKnight? Yeah, I think they'll create turnovers. I mean... You know, I think you'll see Willard go to go to go to Nelson a lot in that game to deal with the press. He's probably their best ball handler, even though he is turnover prone a little too. Um, you know, I'm not saying they're going to turn him over 18, 19 times, but I, I'll, they'll turn him over. But now the problem is, especially if St. John's goes to their small lineup that they like to go to in the press, is you beat that press and you can hammer them, whether it's open threes, whether it's dunks for for Obiago and Gill and, and Samuel. You know that. Um, in the Georgetown game, Georgetown beat the press a lot, and they got a lot of easy baskets. Even DePaul did the same thing. So it's kind of like pick your poison. You, know, you, you want the press to create turnovers, but if you don't get the turnover, sometimes it hurts just as much. Now, you mentioned previously you believe that the Seton Hall is going to be ranked coming up after this Monday's rankings come out. What do you think the keys are to the game if St. John's is going to pull the upset? They got to shoot well from three. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. When you're talking about beating a really good team, um, you got to you got to hit some threes. They got to turn them over, and they got to hold their own on the glass. I mean, I know Seton Hall's not a great rebounding team, but they will have the clear size advantage. So, you know, it, 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 and when I say shoot the ball well from three, I'm talking mostly Heron and Figueroa because they're their two best their two best shooters. St. John's is going to beat any of the big boys in the league, and I consider them to be three clear top teams in the Big East: Seton Hall, Xavier, uh, Seton Hall, Butler, Villanova. You're going to beat those three teams. You got to hit some threes. And in that Butler game, when they were down big early and came back, they hit, they hit about three or four threes in the second half, um, and they, you know, basically needed one or two more to win that game. They were right there to pull it off, but. You know, if they're going to do that, I, you got to see. I think Harrell and Figueroa need to combine for 35 to 40. How about somebody who would kind of be more of an X factor? We like to ask this question and say, besides the go-to stars uh, for the competition coming up against Seton Hall, give the fans a name that we should be looking for that might not be a household uh, name uh, that's familiar. A key guy for St. John's has been Greg Williams. He's a sophomore. He didn't really play much last year. He's, he's battled some injury issues. He had a back issue. He 
He he recently had a head injury that cost him uh, the Georgetown game, but he's been really good. He had he had 11 points in, in the uh, Butler game. You know, he's he's probably he might be their most well-rounded guard because he, unlike um, Rutherford and Dunn, he can shoot the three. He's super athletic. He's a really good defender. Um, in some of their big wins, he's really played well, and I think his role is just going to keep expanding as long as he can just stay healthy. Okay, Zach, we're going to put you on the spot. Give us a prediction for that game. I think Seton Hall is going to win by six. I think it's going to be a good game, though. I think it'll be close. I think St. John's will have chances. I just don't see them shooting well enough from three. And, look, Seton Hall is going to have the best player on the floor. They're going to have the best player on the floor basically most nights, obviously, with Powell. I just don't see St. John's hitting enough shots. They will force turnovers. They'll create problems with their press. But I, I just think Seton Hall is playing too well right now. Uh, for St. John's to beat. Okay, let's say St. John's unfortunately loses their upcoming road game, and then they back it up with a loss to Seton Hall, as you predict. That puts them at one and five in the conference. But where do you kind of see them then projecting beyond that for the rest of the season? I still think they're going to get get to six or seven league wins. You know, I think I think they're going to um, win enough home games. I think they will get better on the road because I do think Heron and Figueroa will start. You know, will play better and be more consistent. I'm just not sold right now that those two guys are playing well enough for this team to win road games and beat some of the best teams in the league. But I, I do think they're going to win their game, fair share of games. You know, I saw more than enough in the non-conference that this team can beat anybody when they play at their best. Yeah, so I still think they're going to get to six, maybe seven league wins. And I think they will get to the NIT, which to me would be a very good year. Well, Zach, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and taking us behind enemy lines. We really appreciate the insight you brought about St. John's. All right, guys, have a good one, and uh, maybe I'll talk to you in March, right? So, Mike, the Seton Hall Pirates are going to be on the road this week. And speaking of the road, where down the road to 2494 is Miles Powell this week? Well, he put in another 47. So if you add those two games to his existing total, now he's up to 1964. That still leaves him 12 points behind Greg Tynes for sixth overall. And I know we've kind of been playing around giving these like projections. So I'm going to do that for you again, because now I'm getting a little confident and get a little cocky again. Right. So <laughs> yeah, man, you flip flop like a I do. I, I don't know. This is what I do in this segment. So I kept on saying, give me three games in the Big East tournament. Give me a couple games in the NCAA tournament. There's five postseason games. He's got to average 27.9 points per game in order to break the record. It's actually gone up since the last time, right? But now I'm sitting there going, well, maybe this team does go to the Sweet 16. Maybe they play six postseason games. That drops the average to 26 and a half. And I was going to be like, ah, Elite Eight, Final Four. I said the heck with that. I'm going to give you nine postseason games, three in the Big East tournament, three in the NCAA tournament, I'm saying we're cutting down the Nets twice. That's 23 <laughs> points per game. He breaks Terry DeHair's record. He breaks Johnny Morton's title game record of 35. And we just go out in a blaze of glory. Oh, Mike, you've lost it completely. A 4-0 start in a Big East, and you've lost it. Is, is that not the way every article read after this Marquette game? Oh. It was just like, watch out, sky's the limit. Seton Hall, book your final four tickets to Atlanta. That's kind of what it felt like all the articles said after this Seton Hall game, which which is interesting because I, I did not get a chance to watch the first half of this Marquette game. And, and a buddy of mine sends me a tweet from Jerry Carino basically saying, Seton Hall getting cut to shreds, Marquette tearing them up from the three-point line. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to have to go watch this game and watch us get our brains beat in. And then I sit down to watch the game, and at about the eight-minute mark, I'm like, Okay, they were hot early, and then we played our basketball, and then we were the better team, and we won this game, and then I read Jerry's recap, and Jerry's got us going, sky's the limit, right? So, I mean, that's what everyone's got to be thinking then, right? Okay, so we previewed Butler. We had Zach Braziller come on and tell us some thoughts about the Johnnies. What do you think this week's going to bring us, Mike? I, I kind of feel like it's another one-on-one. One. We've been saying that consistently for the first two weeks of the Big East season. I think whenever you go on the road in the Big East, I don't care how well you're playing. I don't care how talented the team is. We are going in and probably playing the team that's going to be ranked fifth in the country. You got to tip your hat to, to Butler and the way they play basketball. For me, it doesn't matter who you have to go face on the road, especially when you face a good team. I'm going to put it down as, as an L, just being a little bit 
cautious more than anything else. I don't want to kind of get too excited and too overhyped, but I do see them going into Madison Square Garden, playing in an environment that what they're familiar with, that they're comfortable in, playing as many games as they played in the Garden in recent years. I think they're a better team than St. John's talent-wise. I think they have more depth than St. John's, and I think they'll kind of walk out of this week at a one-and-one, one, be at five-and-one overall in the Big East standings, and I have no complaints if that's where we currently are at. If they beat Butler, gravy train. Now, I tend to agree with you, Mike. Last week, I said we were going 2-0. and This week, I think you're right. I think we go 1-1. One and one. There's no shame walking into Butler and losing. Hinkle's going to be rocking. They're going to be the fifth-ranked fifth team in the nation. You know, this is probably, if there's ever a good game to lose, this might be a good game to lose. And then they come back to Madison Square Garden. I don't care that Zach said that Seton Hall's had their problems playing the Johnnies. This is a different Seton Hall team. I think we take care of business in the home away from home. Hey, like I said, I I did not know that going into the Big East slate that I'd be marking this Wednesday's game with a big star on my calendar. So I'm, I'm juiced up, as always. Go Pirates, prove me wrong, and sky's the limit. Go Big Blue. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Diziri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. 